0: Uh, Through a fairly long process, we've charted the course for what we hope to do and be as a church. Uh, As a reminder to you that while we have cast vision this past month, it's helpful to recognize what vision casting is and what vision casting isn't. Uh, I mentioned this in the first week of March, but it's important to remember that uh, our vision is not the foundation of FAC, that, that churches are not built on vision. They're merely directed by vision. Uh, Churches are not built on vision. They're built actually on the gospel of Christ. Uh, And so our vision is not a foundation, uh, but rather we kind of view it as a gate by which uh, it will help us concentrate our direction and our efforts through a single channel. It will aid us in discerning what steps to take as a church and what steps not to take uh, it's also helpful, helpful to remember um, that no vision of a church can entirely be expressed from a formulated, well-organized set of words on a page. Um, it's so much more than just uh, words on a page. Uh, but it is helpful to have a short, concise statement which summarizes what our vision is. And so in a deliberate and intentional effort to keep it out in front of us, I'll share it again here the third week in a row, um, that our vision here at FAC is to build, equip, and mobilize followers of Jesus so that all nations may know him to God's glory. Uh, The last two weeks, we've actually taken time to uh, examine the biblical support for what it means to build followers of Jesus, and then last week, what it means to equip followers of Jesus. And this Week, we look at the concept of mobilizing followers of Jesus, and for that, we turn our attention to Romans chapter 10. Um, I invite you to follow along as I read. We'll go from verse 1 uh, all the way through verse 17. This is what Paul writes Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And dear father, as the psalmist writes, you bless those who walk according to your word. As we look to your word now, Would your spirit actively engage our minds so that he may mold our hearts to your will and your liking. We praise you, Father, for your grace and mercy to us. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Contrary to what some uh, may think, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Now, that is a straight quote from the pastor-theologian, John Piper, um, out of Minnesota. Uh, Piper explains that when all is said and done, the glory of God is the ultimate goal of not just individual believers, but corporately, uh, uh, by the church as a whole. God's ultimate desire is to be glorified, and glory to his name is motivation uh, is his motivation in all things. If you've ever asked the question, why did God do this or why did God do that, it can always be traced back to bringing himself glory. That is his ultimate motivation in all things. And throughout Scripture, we're told that he is not to be glorified and worshiped just by a specific group of people, not just by a particular nation, but rather glorified by all nations. And we get a peek of what this looks like in Revelation at the the end of the Bible, right? Uh, When the end does come, we actually see that there will be a representation from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And and when the nations collectively worship God Almighty in heaven, this will symbolize uh, creation's restoration to its original design, a full representation, if you will, of humanity with its creator giving him praise and glory, worshiping him for all eternity. It's a beautiful sight. But in order for the nations to worship, we must send to the nations. God has sent to the nations. We must mobilize. To finish Piper's quote from earlier, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist, however, because worship doesn't because there are people who don't worship God, which is why missions exist, which is why mobilization is so critical uh, because we strive for the worship of God and it doesn't exist and it doesn't exist uh, among many people. And at the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church, one of the nations in the first century who notoriously did not worship God was the nation of Israel. If you read through the book of Acts, what you will find is this severe aversion uh, from Israel to what God was doing at that point in history. They were not receptive to God's salvation plan for them. And that is the primary concern that Paul deals with here in these chapters in Romans. He is explaining to the church in Rome what is happening with the Israelites in regards to their relationship with God and why it's happening. So in the original context, Paul is specifically dealing with the nation of Israel in this passage. However, our culture today very much mimics Israel's attitude towards God. There is an overlay of truth in this passage that still resonates with many people in this point of of history. So we'll walk through this together. And from the passage, I actually see three different sections that were true then, and they remain true today. And I'm going to give you these sections up front so you can use them sort of as road markers as we travel through the passage together. In verses one through three, we see that there was a problem with Israel. There's a problem. In verses 4 through 17, there is, or excuse me, uh, in 4 through 13, there is a solution. There is a solution to that problem. And then in verses 14 through 17, there is a responsibility. A problem, a solution, a responsibility. So, So first, starting in verse 1, there is a problem which exists. And Paul makes it perfectly clear that it is a very painful problem. He begins in verse 1 by explaining his heart's desire in prayer to God for them, being the Israelites, that they may be saved. He has this unflinching desire to see the Israelites saved. Earlier in chapter 9, Paul uses even more stronger and graphic language when he writes that he has this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And this is wild to think about, but he goes as far to say at the beginning of chapter nine that if I could trade places with the Israelites, Paul says, if, if I could be cut off from Christ instead so that, so that the Israelites could be connected to him, I would do it. That's crazy. And it shows us Paul's heart and it shows us that there are a are few things in the world that are heavier than the heart of a believer who longs for a loved one to be saved. The deep gravity of the idea that my child is not saved, or the deep gravity that my brother is not saved, that my father or my mother is not saved, the deep gravity of that Is unrelenting and it tugs at our hearts in a way that most things don't. And the same is true of Paul for his nation. In these chapters, Paul is actually in the middle of criticizing the Israelites and their treatment of God, but we see that it's not born out of a spirit of pride. It's not born out of a spirit of legalism. It is not born out of a spirit of animosity, but out of a spirit of love and deep concern. Before Paul diagnoses the Israelites, before he explains what's wrong with them, he makes it known that the reason he points out a problem to begin with is out of great love and concern for them. Right, Because when a doctor diagnoses a disease to their patients, it's out of love and concern. No doctor in their right mind would avoid diagnosing a patient so as not to hurt their feelings. No, if there is a sickness and a solution, if you will, to that sickness, you need to tell them, which is what Paul explains here. And he does get to the problem, but before he gets to what the problem is, he mentions what the problem isn't in verse 2. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. And zeal for God in this verse is actually put positively. It's recognized as a good thing that Paul is recognizing that the Israelites, they have a passion for God. Right? They desired God. They had a desire to know and honor God and to be right by God. But what this shows us is that good intentions and passion don't count for much in God's economy if not directed properly. Paul's saying that they had this great passion for him, but that's not enough to to simply have passion. Paul says that their zeal was actually misdirected because it lacked knowledge. It lacked knowledge. What does Paul mean by that? He explains it in verse three. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. The, the, The knowledge they lacked was an understanding of what makes one righteous In God's eyes, they didn't know what it took to be able to be in right standing with God. God has a prescribed standard of what makes one righteous and the Israelites didn't know what it was. And as a result of their ignorance of the righteousness of God, they in turn are disobedient to him and they seek to establish their own righteousness, Paul says, and that right there, in a nutshell, is our universal problem that's true even of today, right? That all humanity in our sin is separated from a perfectly righteous God. We are unrighteous. We do, we do not have standing before God, right? Whether we want to believe it or not, our, our sin has kept us from a right relationship with God, And although God has made his righteousness available to us, many are ignorant to it and do not submit to it. They reject it, and they in turn seek to establish their own form of righteousness. In other words, many try to secure a right relationship with God by their own means and on their own terms. And they do not care what God has to say on the matter, but rather seek to achieve wholeness, fulfillment, and, Righteousness with God apart from God. What what Paul says here is that the Israelites failed to seek a relationship with God in the right way. They, they, They sought out a righteousness that came from their own efforts, specifically their own relationship with the Mosaic law. That by following the law, but by being morally good people, by being ethical, by following all the rules, we will be able to stand in God's presence. We will be able to earn, if you will, his favor, that salvation is something you earn, that my relationship with God is based on my own merit, what I can bring to the table, what I can do. And this was a problem for the Israelites, and it's still a problem for us today, right? How how many times... Uh, How many people feel that their status with God is based on their own behavior or based on their own effectiveness or based on their own performance? that, That you can somehow earn an audience with God if I just prove myself. Many still today seek their own righteousness and they themselves define their own righteousness. They determine what is right and what is wrong, not God. They determine the measure of what is good enough that makes one righteous. But such a righteousness that I define for myself is actually powerless. It's powerless to bring me into right standing with God. It's impossible. Paul will go on in his answer, in his solution to say that the Israelites' pursuit of their own righteousness is actually a vain pursuit. It's an empty chase to try and fulfill all the requirements of the law because the law has already been fulfilled, Paul says. Every requirement needed, right? To to be in good and right standing before God has been achieved. And it's been achieved in the person of Jesus. Whatever standard God had was met in the person of Jesus. And that is the solution to the problem that we have. In verse 4, Paul writes that Christ is the end of the law of righteousness. Now, to, to call him the end of the law of righteousness, this does not mean that the law no longer matters, right? that it's somehow null and void. It does not mean that we unhitch ourselves right from the Old Testament. No, this means that Jesus is what the law pointed to that Jesus was the end goal of the law, that he is a great word to use maybe instead of end, is he is the culmination of the law. Many authors use this illustration that the law is like a race, which pointed our, our direction toward the finish line, toward an end goal. It reminded me as I was reading when I was younger, I would regularly explore the wooded areas around my house and around our school. I lived uh, fairly close to the school. And every fall, I would begin to see trees that had an X spray painted on them. Uh, And for a time, I had no idea what these marks meant until I met one day a friend who ran cross-country. And he explained to me that those are markers set out before cross-country teams so that they know which way to run. Those marks point you to the finish line. However, I've heard on such occasions that every once in a while, there would be a runner from another school who was unfamiliar with the territory and missed where the marker was pointing to and found themselves aimlessly lost aimlessly running toward a finish line that doesn't exist. So the law is like a race. And Jesus is the finish line. But unfortunately, according to Paul, upon even seeing the finish line, upon seeing Christ, the Israelites missed it. And they just kept running, looking and striving for something that doesn't exist. A righteousness by their own effort. a a phantom finish line. You can run that race your entire life and you will never come to the end because it's a phantom righteousness, a fake finish line. God's righteousness, however, is plain and clear. And it comes in the person of Jesus. God's plan of redemption has reached its climax in Jesus. Having lived a perfect, sinless life, Jesus satisfied God's standard and everything that the law demanded, Christ has taken care of. And what this demonstrates is that Jesus is not only our substitute in terms of his death, like we so often speak of, but he also serves as a substitute in terms of his life, right? That he not only died for us, but he also lived for us. He not only experienced the death that was reserved for us, but he lived the life that we were called to live. He is a substitution in the purest sense of the word. And we need to be reminded that Christ's life is a critical part of the salvation message. Right? That, that which precedes the cross in the salvation message is the perfect life that Jesus lived. And Christ not only died for us so that, we could take, so that he would take on our sin, but he lived for us so that we would take on his righteousness, the righteousness of God. It's a swap. And we could take on his righteousness because... He was the fulfillment of the law. He was the end of the law. We could not take on his righteousness if he was not the culmination of the law. If If he did not live a perfect, sinless life, there would be no righteousness to take on. And so Christ, having laid down his life, taking our place, gives us his place in righteousness, God's righteousness. Jesus is the answer to that universal problem. Jesus is the remedy of our broken human condition. Jesus is the righteousness of God. And because the righteousness of God is not something that must be earned, but rather something that is given through Jesus as a gift, Paul goes on to explain in these verses that it becomes both available and accessible. It's available and it's accessible. The the righteousness of God is available in the sense that there are no longer any barriers that keep us from it. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't need to speak a certain language. You don't need to be from a certain area. You don't need to come from a specific background or upbringing. The righteousness of God is available to everyone. That's what he gets at later on in verses 11 and the 12, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to, to everyone. And there's only one condition. Right? There's only one condition that Scripture places here, uh, on it, and it's in verse 4, and then you see it again in verse 11 and 12, and, and that is, is available to everyone, all, who believes. Belief in Jesus is the only way to God's righteousness. is all that it's, a need, that it's needed. It's, it's available. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter your upbringing. It is available to you if you would just believe. It's available. The righteousness of God is also accessible. It's easily accessed, which is what Paul gets specifically at in verses 5 through 8. In those verses, Paul begins uh, quoting uh, the Old Testament quite a bit, and he's applying principles from the Old Testament uh, to the gospel here in Romans 10. And Paul writes, you don't need to ascend to the heaven or descend to to the abyss, but but that this word is near you, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. To, To put it simply, in these verses, Paul explains that the righteousness of God by faith is not something far away and difficult to understand right? It's not far away. It's not difficult to find, but it's close at hand. It's found in the very message that I preach, Paul says. It's found even here today in the very message that I preach. It's sitting right here in front of us, right? Just as there are no barriers which keep you from God, there are no barriers that have kept God from you, Right? God has not stashed this mysterious message away in some far-off hidden vault as if it's something that only a master codebreaker can crack and unlock. It's not hidden away in the highest of the heavens or buried down in the depths of the earth. It's, it's, it's right here. And the reason that it's not in those locations is because Jesus already accomplished such things. This is what Paul says. We don't need to ascend to the heavens to find this message of the righteousness of God because Jesus came down from heaven. He brought it down from heaven to abide with us, to be with us, to live with us in the flesh, to walk with our shoes. He brought the message down. And Paul says we don't need to dig from the crust of the earth to find this message because Jesus was put into the earth at his death. And he rose from the grave, he, he brought it up. And so it's not far away, it's near. It, it's, it's right here, Paul says, it's right in front of your eyes. Many people make much about searching for God, trying to find God, seeking out God. But the reality is that God sought you. And God has gone to great lengths to make himself known to you. And so even today, if you are a a spiritual voyager on some sort of quest to find God, if you're sitting here today wishing that God would just tell you who he is, my response to you is that he has. He already has in the person of Jesus. You don't have to get to God because God came to you and he told you exactly who he is. There's no legitimate reason why people could miss this because the righteousness of God is near and has showed us who he is. And God made it as easy as possible to attain his righteousness, to attain right standing before him. What one must do to be saved, many people ask. And it's not as much as something that you do as if it requires an action, but something that you accept something you believe, something you proclaim, something you you merely respond to. Verse 9, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, or, or in other words, that he is your master, that he calls the shots, that he knows what's best for you, that he has the best direction for your life, that he is God in the flesh, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God God raised him from the dead, or in other words, that everything necessary to achieve righteousness, everything required to achieve right standing with God is found in the person of Jesus and his work and the death and resurrection. Those who believe that will be saved, will have right standing before God. They will be able to stand before God's holy presence. It's that easy. That's all that God requires. That is how accessible the message is. And God could not make it any easier without violating his own character. It is literally the bare minimum. And anything less is a breach of who he is. And God can't do that. No, he has offered his righteousness to you and all you have to do is believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. We have a problem. God has offered a solution to our problem. And that solution is not a measure that we need to take or perform because the measures have already been taken by Jesus Christ. No, the solution is not a measure that we need to perform, but instead... It's a message that we need to proclaim. This is a treasure that we possess, those of us who have come into the righteousness of God. And we have a duty to share. We have a responsibility, which Paul lays out in verses 14 through 17. Paul uses four rhetorical questions, all with the assumed same assumed answer to make his point. And he says, salvation only occurs when someone believes in Jesus and calls out to him for their salvation. So Paul rightfully asks, how will they call on Jesus if they don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was? They won't. And how will they believe in him if they have not heard this message of God's righteousness? They won't. And Paul says, how are they gonna hear If somebody doesn't preach to them, if somebody doesn't actually open their mouth and use words out loud, telling them about Jesus, they won't. And how will anybody preach unless they are sent? Unless somebody has taken the initiative to send them out with the message, they won't. It's a chain of events which the Holy Spirit uses that must occur in sequence in order for people to call on Jesus for salvation. And it's important to make the distinction that, that, yes, we desire to mobilize, right? We desire to be ascending church with the expressed purpose of following this chain of events that Paul describes. We mobilize with the ultimate intent that people would hear the good news, of Jesus Christ. That, that is what we control. That is the end goal that we have in mind of what we are responsible for because let's be real with each other. There are a lot of things that you could be sent to do. A lot of things that would be perceived as good to, 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 be, to, to, to send to do. And we need to be perfectly clear about what we are sending one to do because that is where the value and the worth of mobilization lies. So Sometimes we, the tasks we send people to do don't really live up to the weight or, or the hype of what we are calling them to do, right? So for instance, I could come to you this morning and say, I have such an important task for you. I, I am going to send you to go and do something. And this is so important. This, this is the most important thing that you will do today. And so you must accomplish this task with excellence. That is how important this is. I am sending you to go get me donuts. As much as one loves donuts, I would expect an eye roll from you at that moment. You would sit there and say, really? You see, the task determines the weight of our mobilization and there are many churches that send their people to do good and productive things, but they stop short of actually sharing the gospel. Perhaps such activity serves as an inroad to to gospel conversations, which is good, but let me implore you that as you are sent to eventually share the gospel, share it out loud with words, proclaim the salvation message of Jesus because faith does not come about because you served somebody or because you helped them in a time of need because you were nice to them. Those are good things once again, but no one is saved from those things. No, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Those things can serve as inroads. And I'm not saying we don't do those things. We should do those and and use them as inroads. But the only way people will believe is through hearing the message proclaimed. Many Christians hide behind that, that planting of seeds. I'm planting seeds. I'm planting seeds. I'm planting seeds. That's nice. But eventually, stop planting seeds. Just tell them the gospel. You've primed them enough. Use your words. At some point, we have to open our mouth. So here at FAC in our vision statement, when we say that we want to mobilize followers of Jesus, we recognize that we as a local body of believers stand at a very important first step of such a process. And we desire to be a sending church. We consider it our responsibility as a church church. Right, to prayerfully develop strategies and provide opportunities for all followers of Jesus to go and proclaim the gospel, not just to the far reaches of the planet, but right here locally to Erie, Pennsylvania. Right? We want to intentionally, deliberately, sacrificially develop long-term relationships with unbelievers both here in Erie and beyond so that we may show them the love of Christ and then tell them about the love of Christ. And we'll know that we're accomplishing this when uh, believers who call FAC home go beyond the the, the comforts of life, where, where we lay down our own priorities and our own desires to be the heart and the hands and the feet of Jesus. It's very rare for unbelievers to come through these doors And so we must go to them. And we want to move from being primarily a gravitational force, right, that pulls people in within these four walls and instead we want to function much more like an explosion which fires people out. Yes, we concentrate the gunpowder in one place, but not with the intent to keep it there, but instead to light it and send people flying all over the place with this message. J.D. Greer, who's a pastor out of North Carolina, puts it best when he writes that a church's success should not be based on seating capacity, but instead should be judged on its sending capacity. We ought not ask the question, how many people come to your church? We ought to ask the question, how many people is your church sending out? What is our sending capacity? And we must remember that this is the model that God put before us in the person of Jesus Christ to send is in the very DNA of the gospel message. The word sent is one of the most critical words in all of scripture because without it, you do not have the gospel. Jesus was sent. He's referred to as sent 44 times in the New Testament. God the Father sent his one and only son. Why? So that he might sacrifice. So so that he might die in our place and take on the sins of the world so that we may know and attain the righteousness of God, so so that we may be restored in our relationship with God. And Jesus himself, after his resurrection, said to his first followers, just as I have been sent by the Father, I am sending you. And while Jesus was talking to his disciples, that application pours out even to us today. You see, do you realize that as a believer, you are sent by God, regardless if we ever do anything about it as a church, you're sent. And it's our hope that through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, that unbelievers would become committed followers of Jesus Christ. And, and it does us very well to remember our place in that process. Right, that while we have a responsibility to this, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that brings about faith and births belief, right? In that five-step process that Paul lays out, only three out of the five steps are really in our control, are they not? Right, we can send and we can preach and by golly, we can be loud enough so that they'll hear. But beyond that, it is then out of our control. We cannot produce in them a saving belief and we cannot force them to call on Jesus even though we so painfully desire it. We, we, we love our families and our friends so much that if we could birth salvation in them, we would do If we could change places with them, as Paul says, we would do it. If if, if I could just convince you that Jesus Christ is the only way I would do it, and some people try to forcefully birth out belief, but you can't. You can only send, preach, and have them hear the message, and then go to the God of salvation and ask him to bring forth growth and birth that kind of pain of relying on God is really what Paul is talking about in the context of this passage. Once again, he's speaking to the situation with the Israelites. Um, This passage is not actually uh, a missionary passage as it has often been used. Uh, Paul is not commanding missionary work in here. He just assumes that this process is already happening. He's not commanding that this process be done, but using the process to illustrate how tragic the unbelief of the Israelites really is. Paul is just commentating on the situation at hand, how they are ignorant of the righteousness of God, and they are ignorant to it despite the fact that it is available and accessible to them. And they are ignorant despite the fact that there have been people sent. And those sent have preached the gospel and they have heard the gospel, but at the end of the day, Paul goes on to explain in the rest of chapter 10 that they still don't believe. They reject God's righteousness. Paul writes this passage to show that the Israelites are without excuse. According to Paul, they had no legitimate reason to be ignorant of the righteousness of God, yet they still are. Everything has been done, but they still don't believe. That that is the original context, but this is what we can pull from this for our own modern application and wisdom. What Paul says about the Israelites, can I say in my own context? Are there people in my life, communities, communities, of which I am engaged with, nations that I know of, that all those still reject God, it is not for a lack of trying. Are there people in my own sphere of influence, in my own network of relationships, still seeking righteousness by their own standard because they have heard and rejected, like the Israelites? Or, Are they still seeking righteousness by their own standard? Because I have never told them about God's righteousness. Two very radically different scenarios with eternal ramifications. Let us not contribute to one's ignorance of God's righteousness in any way. And as we depart from each other's company every Sunday, do not consider this a disbanding or a disbursement of people, but rather consider it a commissioning. You are sent every Sunday to go to your places of work, to go to your homes and share the gospel of Jesus Christ in some way, in some fashion, to someone this week. And then we commit our work to the hands of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you that you sent your son, Jesus, to accomplish a mission, a mission that none of us could have accomplished. And we praise you for that, Lord. We thank you, Father, that while we were in our sin, you came to us and you revealed yourself to us. You came 100% of the way, Lord, and you didn't even ask us to to, to meet you halfway. You didn't even ask us to meet you 1% of the way. And and for that, we praise you, Lord. And if there's anybody here who is still seeking out their own righteousness, Father, would you open their eyes? Would you touch their heart? They've heard the message preached today. And now they have an opportunity to respond to you, Lord. And so would your spirit do his work and touch their hearts before they leave today so that they would believe in who Jesus is and what he did and call on you, call on him for their salvation. It's for this that we praise you, Father. And in your holy name I pray, amen.